Modern life is incredibly stressful, but it's nice to have a play space. And I think the variety of metaverses involved will provide a play space for people. We need it. Welcome to Think Beyond, a podcast by Cassette that reframes the way we think about our current reality so we can explore the possibilities that set us on a more exciting path tomorrow. This series is co-hosted by me, Kat Wiles, Chief Strategy Officer at Cassette, and me, Tracy Follows, futurist and author of The Future Review. Well, today we're very lucky to be speaking to Ava Pascoe, a futurist, internet consultant and entrepreneur. She's got a long, impressive CV, but Ava's best known for co-founding Britain's first cyber cafe back in 1994. She's also helped Topshop set up its first online shopping experience just before the turn of this century. And today she spends her days as director of e-commerce at the retail practice. She has such a vast amount of experience and she can tell us so many interesting stories about the formation of the internet and who was using it and why certain groups weren't using it and what she's tried to do about that. Absolutely. And I think her message and her passion and purpose for inclusivity on the internet from the very beginning and the role of bringing other audiences in was just really inspirational. And I think it speaks as much as it did when she was doing that in the 90s and is still doing that today as it does in in 2022 and beyond. Agreed. It was one of my favourite interviews we've done, Kat. She's got a lot to say, Ava has, so shall we let her say it and uh, go to the interview? Absolutely. Well, welcome, Ava. We are so privileged and so excited to have you here today. Very, very lovely to see you and to see you again, Tracy, and to meet Kat. Very excited her being there. Kat and I have been wanting to talk to you for ages, and we know that you've got such a fascinating background in everything that I suppose we still and used to call cyber. So we want to talk to you about some of those pioneering days and also, of course, what you're up to now. Maybe we could um, start by... You telling us a little bit about, you know, the beginnings of the internet, where I think you said something like, it's an elitist hobby. <laughs> Take us back from then to now and maybe tell us a bit about the internet and the transition that you've been on and uh, how this tool has changed from being an elitist hobby to a necessary tool of life, perhaps. Internet, you know, it changes every five minutes, but ultimately it's still in the hands of very technical community. So I was uh, introduced to the internet at uh, London University. I was in Berbeck College doing my psychology degree and obviously everybody lived online. So everybody was emailing uh, each other. We all had very narrow specializations. So your partners, your research partners, were quite often three people in Australia or one person in Reykjavik. The nature of our research uh, forced us to use email, but you know, very quickly people figure out that email is actually enormous fun and it became from a research tool to a live tool and all the way to people meeting people on email and getting married on email, you know, it was just crazy. And I was watching and I thought like, why is just only the academics playing with it? Why? You have to be in this sort of very special center to be able to access all this. Never mind all the other fun things like, you know, Usenet groups and bulletin boards and lovely little murky corners of the 
cyberspace, which we're absolutely addicted to, but it was very narrow and you only really could access it if you actually were at university and a pretty good university because the, not every university had access. So we were thinking, you know, how we can take it out to other people as well. But at that time, internet was in early nineties was virtually just demilitarized. Mm. So there was still a very heavy air of ARPANET over it and ooh, spice and only, you know, James Bond would be able to use it. <laughs> so when I suggested that we take it to the high street and we put it in a cafe, ooh, that didn't go down well at all. And I got very stern talking to from my academic supervisors. And actually that did affect my PhD, which I never finished because uh, people didn't think that the general audience was ready for it. You know, with the benefit of the hindsight, maybe they were right. <laughs> maybe we didn't have enough tools to protect people. But, you know, at that time, we just thought it was ridiculous, which is my comment about elitist hobby was obviously a little bit facetious because it was a tool for work. But the fact that it was only available for people within university just sounded odd to me. And, you know, I came from Poland, so I learned my tech at uh, Warsaw University when I was studying uh, linguistics. And we were told how to program quite early on because early artificial intelligence programs was all about simulating how people speak. And my teachers were women, my professors were women. I mean, software was considered something that actually women did because the boys did the hardware. When I came to UK and I realized I was one of the very few women with that uh, background, but this is very strange that we need to fix that. So when we found this little corner shop for hire with my co-founders, it was just on the back of my university. So I could still pretend to carry on my PhD and start the cyber cafe. So the four of us co-founders found this place and it was right opposite, I think five or six big advertising companies, which we didn't know about at that time. But obviously they were pretty critical to making the medium understood in a wider way. So we set up this cafe and my private angle on it um, was to teach uh, women how to use internet, how to bring it to everybody. It was pretty damn crazy because at that time you quite often opened the computer and it was still pretty blank and you had to have command line language knowledge to get anything out of it. I think I wrote one of the first page listings and it wasn't very long. <laughs> you didn't need to search. It was like, you know, a hundred pages. I realized that, you know, to get women, there would be hard work because when we opened, my plan was to, you know, obviously to serve the coffee and computers, but to focus on, on cyber feminism and women access. So we opened and we had the line around the Siberia cafe three deep, but they were all blokes. So I thought, mm, okay, this is going to take a while. <laughs> So eventually I, I lucked into a page, one of the early pages from France, it was Louvre for the museum. And we started using that page as part of the training, which I developed HTML for women. I think, to be honest, it was the first training written down. And as it happened, it was for women. So I think that's probably my claim to fame. When we actually started teaching officially, it was for women. It went really quickly because what we realized that women just wanted to build their own galleries. So. When the context was right, what art do you like and how would you like to display it to others? Your curation. Ah, that was good. And then obviously we found a lot of digital artists, people emerging from the woodwork that had skill who could actually create, you know, use early Adobe and whatever simple tools were around, but women were emerging using them. So I worked a lot with Hannah Gall, who was then Adobe 
artist-in-residence and a head of illustrations for The Guardian. And she basically drove a whole lot of wonderful digital artists, female digital artists. So when it came to visual, when internet became just about fast enough to actually push a picture for the very, very narrow bandwidth, then it was fine. Then women came and then everybody else came. So it was the visual that drove it. And now we have Web3. People love the idea of decentralization, but today the difficulty is in managing that decentralization for your own personal use. So having the public addresses very well, well, but having a private key that nobody else knows, that's the challenge because we humans, we're not quite constructed in the right way. Yes, and it's designed in a certain way. I always think of women as naturally networked, like the internet. You know, whenever I've done work with women, it's when they talk about anything, it's like, how can we get so-and-so involved and how can we create a community? And it very much feels like anything that is adjacent to work or is work is also a network for women. Do you feel that Web3 is more open and accessible to women now? To tell us a little bit about the work you're doing with, with women, if you if you still are. Uh, yes, you know, and I'm all, all the way from my technical career, I always had this sort of slightly cyber feminist bent mm. because although more women are involved, I would say the number of women involved in the cutting edge of research is not bigger in proportion for a variety of reasons. So you have to really work on it. You know, I was very lucky that at the beginning of my technical career, I came across a program run by IBM that tracked people all the way from the early days of the PhDs and sort of, you know, held the hand through all the onboarding to the technical community. And then over the career period, so there's a lot of women who are today digital scientists and distinguished engineers who are still in IBM because it was possible to have that route. Today, nobody does it. Google couldn't care less, Microsoft couldn't care less, any of these big companies that have more money than sense, they absolutely do lip service and various fem washing, but they do nothing. When I realized that it's disappearing, I put a lot of my time into maintaining whatever we can rescue out of it and kind of, you know, drag the troops through as they go along, because every step of the way you get the push up, every turn of technology particularly as people are getting older, they're like, oh, are you ready? You should be not even here, you know? And uh, oh my God, in crypto, it's like, uh, <laughs> there ain't any red carpet for you, Han. So, you know, we have to make our own red carpet. You talked to, started talking to us about Web3 and some of the changes that are coming and the disruption that we're all going to be uh, facing for good maybe some bumps in the road on the way too. But I'd love to know your definition of Web3 and what you think the potential and importance of it is. For me, it's, it's a journey that we've been on from the beginning. So what was internet? It was always about decentralization from the early days. I'm not quite sure if I buy the story about, you know, the fact that it was made to survive nuclear power disaster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, halfway through the journey, we ended up in a completely wrong place. We ended up with virtually three entities, maybe four, that hold the internet on the data centers, which is really not what we started with. And I think in June last year, for half a day, Google's data centers went off and it was insane how many things were down. So how many applications, like obviously everything on Google, but also Shopify. 
Who knew that Shopify hosts on Google? So for like half a day, nobody could shop on anything. And more importantly, a lot of mission critical applications that sit on Google Cloud were down as well. That would not have happened five years earlier because there was such a huge diversity of where people host. So I have no trust or faith in cybersecurity and the technology robustness of these big companies because they're nine to fivers. You know, people go home at five o'clock. If you want to break them, you will break them because people who want to break them don't go home at five o'clock. So they will always win. So the only really solution is decentralize, decentralize, decentralize. And because um, Web3 is so much fun, people are doing it and building it for a variety of different reasons. But the outcome is that we will all benefit from a massive improved distributed cybersecurity and robustness. With every new technology, you can iron out horrible things you missed in the first one. So, you know, when Tim Berners-Lee built the original web concept, he wasn't worried about cybersecurity. It just wasn't even a thing. It never transpired as a need to be optimized. It was added on later. And that later has never really worked. So Web3 is an opportunity to build it up, bottom up, every step of the way, knowing that there will be a lot of people who try to break it every step of the way. That's brought me to something that I really wanted to ask you about, which is avatars. So you're talking about decentralization. You've mentioned digital fashion. I wanted to ask you about how we are starting to represent ourselves as avatars. But linking to what you were just talking about with these walled gardens, do you think it's ever going to be possible that we could have a universal avatar? Because I can't at the moment quite see how the interoperability is going to really work, how we're going to be able to represent ourselves the way we might want to in each of these different worlds at different times, if they've got too much control over what we should look like, how we should represent ourselves and the limits of that representation. If you come up against those limits of those walls gardens, I'd, I'd love your point of view. And I guess it's almost like the metaverse versus the multiverse. <laughs> yeah, this is a very good point because the metaverses that we're being lured into at the moment are very private and very closed gardens, and they will be very expensive any minute now. We started working the last few months with reconceptualizing it and not trying to support anybody else's metaverse, but having lots of different metaverses that we own, we can build ourselves. I even wrote a short story about it for a book that's coming up in a couple of months, 22 Ideas About the Future. It's about gamers who always create their assets in every game, and then the gaming company creates a new currency within the same game. So what you earned before gets completely washed yes. out, even within the same game, even before you actually went to another game. Gaming the gamers. <laughs> so we wrote this story about this guy who cracked it, and he created cut coins which are interoperable and can be transferred. You can earn in one game, but then transfer it to other game. And I think avatars will have to be the same, but the crux of the matter is that we have to have our own metaverses, like we used to have our own bulletin boards. So I was very inspired by Stacey Horn in uh, New York in the mid nineties. She used to run her own bulletin board for New Yorkers called Echo New York. It was kind of like the San Francisco law, mm. the well. But the East Coast people were always in the wrong time and always complained that they want their own. So she created Echo and it was hilarious because it was hosted under her desk in her tiny apartment in Greenwich Village. Yet it was the most lively, creative, beautiful environment for pretty much everybody who was in the creative scene in New York. 
And it lasted very long time. I mean, I was still on it a few years ago. I think that's the way to go. We, we just need to have our own metaverse virtually under our desk, or at least in control of the hosting, and then create DAOs for joining the metaverses. So if you guys have one in Toronto, we have one in London, and if we form a DAO that combines all of us, then we can collaborate and we can agree this interoperability because at the end, the hard consensus comes from soft consensus. So there's a lot of talk before we actually hard code anything into blockchain. But if you have the tools to do soft consensus, you can do anything you want with the hard consensus. So I think that was a really intriguing and for me quite promising that we could have all our own scenes in the metaverse, but we will form groups and DAO slash cooperatives to work out exactly what you mentioned, Tracy, the, the interoperability, because it is doable. You know, the games could do it now. They just don't want to. It's a governance problem. Mm, interesting. But also, you know, there's a lot of fun with making the avatars, but because they're still quite complicated, there will have to be a lot more standards because, you know, if you develop your avatar in Maya or in Blender or any or the other, they might not work in somebody else's place. So it's like, it, we're not quite there yet. And uh, did you see that um, Spatial, I think it was, were are doing legs and feet for avatars so we can have proper full body avatars. I know that's notoriously difficult to do. Goodness knows what, we'd probably be walking backwards. I'm like on that topic. I love <laughs> the idea, but honestly, it's like filming theater. You know, when people develop the camera, yeah. they didn't really know what to do with it. So for the last 20 years, they filmed theater. Developing feet for the avatar is a little bit feeling theater. Honestly, I don't need the bra in metaverse. You know, I'm going braless. Like, don't make me do things that I don't need. You know, like it's fine. It's it's a completely different form. I don't know what form it will be, but I can tell you there won't be lingerie in metaverse and we'll probably be dancing naked so we, i think we're solving different problems there. we'll be dancing naked with those new ethical norms and rules where we have to keep two meters apart for social distancing because we're all naked i don't well, know a lot of people i know are going there not to keep the rules so you know it will be exactly yes it's a, it's another world to be oneself or someone else in which is the exciting thing where you can explore different versions of the self, I guess. That's one of the things I think is most interesting about it. Yeah, no, definitely. Do you remember the early bulletin boards? You know, I think I was like three different people on them because why wouldn't you, right? So, okay. you know, being yourself, single identity is quite hard work. So being able to explore different ones, of course you do. It's just as long as it's not in the digital voting for democracy, <laughs> everything else, you know, I'm all for multi-identities. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all have multiple identities every day. It's just the degree to which different people see different versions of ourselves. And so, you know, in the online world, we have that ability to unleash these different identities that we have within ourselves. Yes. And I think it's very healthy because, you know, modern life is incredibly stressful. I mean, all I do is learn all the time, you know, and, and I, I miss a day and there's three technical revolutions happening. So yeah. <laughs> you have to be super focused, but it's nice to have a play space. And I think the variety of metaverses involved will provide a play space for people. We need it. I think we're a bit obsessed or tied up with the concept of meaning from work. You know, yes, people do get some meaning. Some people get a lot of meaning from work, but not everybody does. And they'd like to create more time to get meaning from other pursuits. And I think um, there's a funny thing in the West where we assume that one's meaning should come from work. 
We can't let you go, Ava, without talking to you about retail and the future of retail and trying to mine a little of the huge amount of experience and knowledge that you've got about retail. We know that you predicted um, that retail or e-commerce would happen on mobile phones long before it did. I'd love to know what people said about that at the time, (laughs) because that's always an interesting um, thing to ponder and and go back and analyse. But take us a little bit further into the future, say 2030 or the end of this decade. Where do you think we will be with retail and e-commerce or whatever it might be, whatever e-commerce might have transformed into 10 years from now? The pace of change, it's always tricky because when we started Cyber Cafe Siberia, we all had other jobs and, you know, I was in my PhD. We thought there would be like, oh, maybe for a year until everybody gets a laptop and until everybody will be at Wi-Fi in every town. And, you know, it took about 10 years to get there. William Gibson said, right, that the future is already here, but it's not evenly distributed. And it's just more true today than it was 20 years ago. But in other areas, things change in a blink. When you rely only on software, when you don't need hardware, things change very quickly. And also the platforms change very fast. So the moment you develop your beautiful strategy for Instagram, you have to start developing one for TikTok. You finish doing TikTok, there is Snapchat. You finish Snapchat, there's something else. So, which is all great because it keeps retailers on their toes. You know, I'm not complaining. It's all excellent. The role of retail is changing. Because the job of retail was always logistics, right? Providing the right things to the right people at the right price. But what's interesting now, it's less about things and it's more about service. I have quite a lot of clients in young fashion. People are really starting being aware that, yes, it's great to be able to afford six dresses per month, but they're all going to be in landfill for about 10 million years. So the younger generation is much more on it. And what they're looking for is the recycling and the circularity. So they want to know, what is the fabric made of? And if it's something that has to last a long time, can I resell it? Can you buy it back from me? The whole life cycle of a product, not just I wear it for five parties and I'm done, but what happens to it after? So I think the job of a retail will be a lot less about delivering things, but about delivering a service where people get the fun of wearing beautiful things because we still want to do it. But also, you know, mending it after and finding a way for that product to either find its way to another user or being able to transform it to something that, you know, is not going to sit in landfill for a million years. So I'm very excited about it. It's really hard. It's not what the companies are structured to do, but they're beginning to understand that this is what the customer wants them to do. And also you see huge growth of rental services. So particularly for the occasion dresses, you know, we all been there, bought one dress, never won it again, still in my cupboard 20 years later, feeling guilty. Even renting for a couple of occasions is better than owning it and not wearing it again. I don't need half of my working wardrobe. But, you know, ultimately, as long as we are still going out, people will want beautiful things. As long as we meet other humans, people want to impress each other with having the latest and the, the most funky stuff. The consumers are very powerful. When you look at how much the consumer changed the concept of the model, every brand I know will have very diverse models, not just size, but race of the models with disabilities. You know, you wouldn't dream about not having them. It became an absolute core norm. A power of consumers, everything. Social media can drive huge amount of change and force the brands, force the, the industry to change. They just have to tell the brands. And if they tell it vocal enough, people will do it. 
That's great. Well, thank you so much, Ava. I mean, we could just carry on talking to you for hours, honestly. I mean, there's so much in here. I feel like it's like, you know, half an hour of packed brain food. I'm certainly going to go off from this conversation to start to look for some cracks in the metaverse um, (laughs) and opportunities. I love that. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Ava. It's been such a privilege to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And if you're looking for cracks, look for crypto accelerators and blockchain accelerators, Satoshi Black Dojo. There are many. And we're trying to make as much of the red carpet for women as possible. So good luck. So Kat, I think there are so many of today's brands who have got a lot to learn from everything that Ava was saying. Absolutely. There's a richness and wealth of information to be taken from today's episode. So maybe one thing people can do is pick up the book that she's got coming out soon, which is 22 Ideas About the Future. I'll be getting a copy myself. I'm dying to read it. And uh, I think it's going to have plenty of inspiration in it for all of us. Absolutely. I'll be picking up mine too. Thank you so much, Ava, for today. And thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to yet another episode of Think Beyond. Think Beyond is a podcast by Cassette that's hosted by me, Kat Wiles. And me, Tracy Follows. We'll be back soon with another episode. If you'd like to learn more about the series or any of our guests, please visit Cassette's website at cassette.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please follow us, share the episode and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Think Beyond is produced by Max Collins and Katie Jensen of Vocal Fry Studios.